uh, I'm going to use the phrase, I'm just a simple physio. And that's the reality. I am a simple physio at the end of the day uh, yeah. when I'm working with him. So I, I'm, I'm there to support him. And as any physio would do in sports, what do you do? You try and reduce the incidence of potential injuries. You try and make sure that you liaise with the other professionals because you can't do it on your own. It's not just about, you, you, don't, you don't manage elite athletes or even to be fair, you don't manage a, a, any person by putting them on a table and treating them, is it? You manage them by you know, educating them, giving them the information, working with the other professionals to support you. you know, does, does he need more strength and conditioning in certain areas? Does he need more recovery? Does he need to train more? Actually, he can do it, great. Or does he need to train less? Um, we do all that, but ultimately, you know, he is his own athlete. He is his own boss. He knows his own body. So, and and uh, you know, we it's not about we tell somebody to do something and they do it. It has to be a conversation. That was Ian Gatt. I am Curtis Mansfield, and this is the Hips and Dips podcast. Over the past few weeks, we have taken a step back from the athletes themselves to observe the people who keep those athletes in working order. This week's guest has over 20 years experience as a sports physiotherapist, attending the Olympics in 2004, 8, 12 and 16 with Team GB Boxing and will be involved in both Tokyo 2021 and Paris 2024. Ian Gatt has worked with some of the biggest names in the sport. Do you recognise any of these guys? Nicola Adams, Joe Joyce, Luke Campbell, Joshua Buazzi. How about multiple world champion Anthony Joshua? Ian has paid witness to some of the biggest fights of the decade as personal cut man to Anthony Joshua. If you're not a boxing fan, Ian has also worked with the Greek cycling team and Greek gymnastic teams ahead of their home Olympics in 2004, as well as working with Team GB Volleyball. Still not impressed? Soon to be Dr. Ian Gatt, due to his PhD studies into upper limb biomechanics at Sheffield Hallam University, Ian has conducted several studies into knuckle injuries and has implemented injury prevention programs, including those around head injuries, particularly concussions. Clearly a very busy man. I am grateful Ian has found the time to give me a few moments just to pick his brains on all things boxing and injury. Ding, ding, seconds out. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Gap Man. Right, Ian, great to see you. Um, how's your day been today? It's been all right. Um, just busy days at the office, uh, particularly with things going on and with COVID. Um, it impacts also on elite sports. And because things are changing every day, uh, particularly where it comes around organizing international events, so training and competitions. Things are happening so quickly that obviously you need to keep up to speed with things to ensure that either things happen or, you know, we decide that things don't happen for the right reason. Yeah, I mean, you're a man of many, many talents, um, whether that be your, uh, your PhD, work you're lecturing you're working with gb boxing your more physio side your management side so which those activities do we pull you away from today to be fair i think you know every, every day is different because as you said like every day you could have different hats and probably i don't think that there a day doesn't go by that i maybe touch base on those different hats uh depends on the situation 
I know a lot of the work particularly that I'll be doing during the day is around the, the management stuff. Um, I manage a group of 15 practitioners. If you include me as a practitioner, we're 16, but I'm more managing uh, these days and a, a bit of a role of consultancy that goes with the physio. But the management is around, we've got eight disciplines. We've got two of those disciplines being your doctors and your physios. In fact, we've got three doctors and three physios uh, that work with GB boxing in different capacities. And then we've got six disciplines around the sports science. So you've got your performance lifestyle and psychology. You've got physiology, strength and conditioning, nutrition, and then also performance analysis. So you can imagine with such a wide team, and then obviously we've got a wide team of coaches, your performance director, your CEO, um, you know, your admin team. And then I obviously am employed by the English Institute of Sports. So apart from boxing, you've got the wider EIS that look after your predominance of Olympic and Paralympic sports. So between speaking with different people, you touch base with a lot of people in a single day. Um, it could be one topic, which could be COVID related. Um, it could be also with the games coming up uh, in the summer. We know that we've got our Olympic qualifier for boxing in London, now scheduled as of today, 99 days to go, it was 100 days from yesterday. Um, and with that, obviously, you know, it's us looking at the preparation of, of everything, um, particularly around the athletes leading to that. But obviously, you know, there's, there's also things to consider, which is uh, the budgets, uh, looking at the next four years into the Paris cycle. So although we're talking Tokyo, which is the current year, as you know, probably uh, is being postponed from last summer to this mm. summer. And obviously keeping our fingers crossed that it all goes ahead as scheduled. But we are also in the beginning year one of the Paris cycle. So we've got four years till Paris 2024. So you're trying to sort of manage the, um, the current and the future in a, in a peculiar time when usually you've closed the books on one cycle. And you might have obviously done some planning towards the end of that cycle, but you close it and then you're into the next one. Whereas we're pretty much in a bit of trying to still focus on one while still making sure the other one is going ahead uh, as usual. Yeah, no, that's, um, and that's really interesting. It's a topic we're going to discuss quite a lot later on, the idea of this whole MDT or sort of multidisciplinary team and how collectively you work towards getting those fighters at the peak of their performance when it comes to a competition. And particularly, I think, relevant to boxing is peaking multiple times. So for amateurs, peaking several times in the same tournament. And we're going, we're going to get on to that later on. But for now, I'm quite keen just to restart every episode by asking how our guest found 2020 and how it affected their health. So that's from a physical, mental and social perspective. And I think particularly in your case, I want to find out kind of how that was affected following the postponement of the Olympics. Yeah, I think um, every year is challenging in different ways. That's, that's how I found my life, really. There's always something challenging. And when there is an unknown, we use the phrase uh, in boxing, and I've, I've learned that and I've actually held true to it, is control the controllables. So you can only control what you can control beyond that. It's you're either worrying about things, which probably best not to, 
Um, and equally, it's about sort of trying to have that crystal ball to the best ability. Um, like a lot of colleagues in the beginning of the year, I had lots of um, plans for the year. We had the Olympics coming. I had lots of face-to-face -face, um, weekends uh, for lectures um, around the things I teach, you know, hands, wrists, and the rest of the, the upper limb. So I do either hands and wrists in isolation, or I do hands, wrists, elbows, and um, uh, shoulders. So you're, you're sporting upper limb masterclass. And, you know, everything looked good, you know, going different places in the world. But suddenly COVID hit, uh, and, you know, what the things I was hearing behind the scenes straight away I realized it's not going to go away quickly. It's going to be with us for the foreseeable future. And even in, in March, April, we're talking about it probably easing off as you go towards the summer and then there'll probably be a U curve where it gets worse later on. So I knew that trying even of the of the year at best probably wasn't going to be um, feasible. Mm. So for me, I always like a challenge and the challenge for me was trying to see how to maximize the time. So obviously, you know, until we knew the games was postponed, there was nothing we could do but focus on the games happening. And then suddenly things changed and then suddenly things got, um, you know, clarified and established that it seems it was going to happen the following year. So obviously your, your, um, time post shift and obviously your how you support the athlete shifts so obviously you talked about the mtd i'm not going to go into much detail now because i know we'll speak a bit more about it but obviously a lot of the work we're doing probably shifted from performance at the time to mental health and supporting the health of the person supporting the person at home to be able to train but still be uh, integrated with the program so you know you don't you don't just tell the athlete to go at home and then see you later it's like making sure that we're doing the right thing so there's definitely a steep learning curve for how as a team we can support these athletes from the coaches to the MTT and probably made it busier in a way because whereas usually we'd see a lot of people on the ground day to day and have informal conversations suddenly you had to structure your week to have um, scheduled meetings uh, happening online. So I think, you know, what people say about um, your online fatigue, your meetings fatigue probably happened and I had it. And mm -hmm. I know that obviously I had to, at, at particular times, I had to find a way to balance things so that I don't get burnt out myself. The other thing for me, which was the, again, the challenging and equally rewarding is, is moving from a more face-to-face -face approach um, where it comes to the teaching. So uh, in collaboration, lots of on, and a, a lot of them have gone out in 2020 last year. Some of them are still coming out now and I've still got more projects in the pipeline. But even my, my online teaching, you know, live teaching, um, that changed. So it went to a, an online platform, uh, some of the things that I've done and the other things I'm still working on. But also it wasn't just about, you know, if I did a one day teaching, doing a one day online, it's about how can you reduce that um, online fatigue that I talk about. So uh, one of the things I did as an example for the one hand, um, sorry, one day sporting hand and wrist is rather than do a full day, which might again make people a bit fatigued, is do half a day equivalent of um, pre-live content, 
where I pre-recorded material myself. You know, I have the video, you have the PowerPoint. Uh, people can see it at their own leisure. A uh, few weeks before, you have other content. So that feels nicely, half a day, uh, mm -hmm. four hours actually of that. And then on the day, we structured it more so that it's more, um, there's more conversation, there's more discussion, there's more people bring on their own sort of um, energy and enthusiasm which I think, you know, when you do it face to face, it's fine. You can do, you can do a full day and you can get that. My worry was doing a full day through Zoom, for example, that people will get a bit um, disengaged because, you know, yeah. you're trying to engage people, but you can't really see them at a lot of times. And that worked really well. So that was a great experience for me. And I think the last thing um, that I found really interesting and challenging was even the, the consultations, you know, private work going from a face-to-face -face approach to an online platform. In fact, I've joined the, the online physios. Um, you, sometimes you may see it um, posts on Twitter, but um, I, I joined mainly um, probably later on in the year, mainly because I had had that experience. And actually I believe that you can provide a very good service online as long as you know what's coming, uh, as long as you prepared for it and you know how to manage the difference between what is a face-to-face -face and an online platform. Uh, and probably a lot of that is enhancing your communication skills, your listening skills, you know, but also if you use objective measures is how can you adapt those for an online platform rather than obviously, you know, having to put your hands on. So lots of challenges for me, I'm not going to say I wasn't uh, fatigued by the end of 2020 because whenever you do lots of new things involves lots of energy. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I learned a lot over 2020. And so I wouldn't say like, you know, a lot of people at the end of the year were going see you later 2020, welcome 2021. I was almost like, I knew in a way we we're going to start the year not great uh, 2021 with COVID. So what I definitely make sure is to have a little breather over Christmas, chill a little bit, but actually restarting 2021 in a way where I left 2020, which is continuing to push forward the things which I feel are important, but personally, but even for the people around me. So, you know, GB boxing, the team, working with other providers, different athletes, and so on and so forth. So it's all about, yeah, what can we maximize every year, really? Yeah, no, of course. I really like that phrase you used right at the start of um, control the controllables. That's something which I think I've taken into my life as well and just taking it day by day, um, just play the game that's in front of you sort of thing. And if you over plan and if you think too far in the future, sometimes you end up because the goals keep changing. So if you keep trying to plan yourself for a certain goal, when that goal changes, it becomes very hard. But sometimes it's best just to do what you can and, and that's really good. So what's your, um, what's your view been overall on boxing's approach to COVID? So obviously from an amateur and a professional point of view, amateur has been a lot harder. In the professional side, you've seen like, you know, events with Eddie Hearn's back garden and so on. How have you found boxing's approach overall? You know, it's, it's, it's been hard. Um, I think you probably said it yourself with the professional boxing, they've probably managed to do a few events, um, you know, with, with Eddie in the back garden and obviously even other providers have managed to do some things. But the, um, with the amateurs, a lot of competitions got cancelled. 
um, which obviously duly so. You know, you have uh, bigger numbers of boxings at these at these events. There were uh, a couple of events on the end of the year. Um, around probably September, October, where COVID was probably a bit better. Um, and obviously it was more opportune to do it. We managed to go to uh, a training camp also at the time, which was good. Um, I think beyond the, the sporting exemptions, which we obviously we, we took on board, there was a lot of protocols that had to be adhered to. Um, it's not just about, yeah, you can go wherever you want as a, as a sport um, or as an athlete. There's a lot of things that have to be put in place, particular paperwork, which which I was involved with, risk assessments and so forth. Um, but obviously, again, you know, where we are at the moment, we're hoping for competitions, which are scheduled in February, March. Uh, fingers crossed they go ahead to get the, the boxes ready for these. But like anything else, you can only plan for the best. Um, you keep hoping and then you see what happens. But, um, you know, the, when I say control the controllables, it's literally day by day. And sometimes even within the day, things could change two times or three times, okay. which obviously makes it more tiring for everybody. I think we're in a, we're in a period now where, especially with the games coming up at, at Olympic level, um, it's very easy for tensions to increase and tolerance to decrease. Um, I heard somebody else say that this year already, that it can happen. And so what we need to do as a collective is make sure that doesn't happen, i.e. the tensions don't increase. Um, if anything, we keep them low and the tolerance actually increases more to make sure that we look after each other. Because ultimately, we're all trying to do a role, but in the same direction. You know, it's not nobody's not trying to do their bit, but sometimes our hands are tied on how things are changing um, from a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, no, exactly. And like you said, that, that affects society on the whole, not just, not just sport, not just elite sport. Okay, so we're going to change track slightly. Um, it's become a little theme of the podcast in recent weeks. We're having a little sort of laid-back, relaxed sort of quiz. Um, and then this week, it's been inspired by an interview I saw with you in a physiotherapy podcast, where you spoke all about the importance of sort of pre-fight rituals and how a lot of boxers and fighters and athletes in general actually have these sort of pre-event rituals that get them into their, to their zone. Um, a lot of people say fighters are the most superstitious. So we're going to put that to the test. So this quiz is called Saved by the Spell. And it's basically 10 uh, athletes from around the world with interesting pre-match rituals. Actually to tell me whether they're true or false. Okay. Okay, let's go. I'm probably going to fail miserably, but let's, let's try. <laughs> well, I think you'll realize they're actually pretty poorly written by me, the false ones. So here we go. Right. Number one, uh, footballer Colo Torre, uh, Ivory Coast International, played for Arsenal, uh, Liverpool, Man City, etc. Um, he had a pre-match ritual where he had to be the last player out of the tunnel before the game. Uh, and in, in the Champions League game, this led to him being uh, issued a yellow card because he came onto the pitch too late. I'll, I'll go for true. Uh, that is true, yeah. Uh, he always insisted both at the start of the game and at half-time being the last player out of the tunnel. So next up, uh, we have basketball royalty, Michael Jordan. Um, he always wore his college shorts, which was North Carolina College, underneath his NBA uniform for his entire career? I'd say true. That's also true, yes. Uh, he's a very superstitious person, uh, Michael Jordan. 
Uh, so next up, number three, uh, Michael Phelps, uh, of course, American swimmer. He refused to wear any other color that wasn't red, white, or blue following his 2008 success. Ooh. I'd say false. Uh, that is a false, yep. Uh, I think I might have bitten off more than I could chew of that one. Uh, number four, uh, Neil McKenzie, who was a South African cricketer. He would only walk out onto the pitch if every single toilet seat in the locker room was down. You know what? I'd say true. <laughs> that is true. Um, it's true. Sounds uh, sounds a bit OCD, there, is it? <laughs> he's a bit OCD. I think, yeah. He um, he actually retired after that, like that year, and then he came back and uh, had a great career after that. Uh, all right, going over to America now. Wade Boggs, who was a, a third baseman for the Boston Red Sox. Um, he had many superstitions, including eating chicken before every game, etc. Uh, but apparently he used to carve the word uh, uh, Chai, I think it is, C-H-A-I, which is Hebrew for living, into the turf before every time he hit the ball. I'd say true. That is true, yes. Um, and next up, uh, back over to Europe, Rafa Nadal, uh, of course, former tennis number one, French Open champion, etc., he makes sure all his water bottle labels are facing the baseline he is serving from. That's definitely true. That is true, yeah. Um, and number seven, uh, so back to America again, LA Diamondbacks players Steve Furley and uh, Darren Estrad uh, wear bags of special magic minerals around their necks. Whilst doing so, these two players hit their highest career returns. I'll say true. <laughs> it's true. Um, that, that pretty much inspired the name Saved by the Spell. Uh, now, very much a local one, ex-Birmingham City manager, Barry Fry, uh, broke a gypsy curse which was placed upon him and the club by urinating in each corner of the pitch. Ooh. I would say false. Ah, oh, it's true. That's <laughs> true. I mean, that was 2000 and 2004. Uh, strange stuff. <laughs> um, so Mo Farah, or so Mo Farah, Sir Mo Farah, um, wears the same pair of socks before every Olympic final. I'd say true. No, that's false. I'm afraid. That's false. Such a good start. Yeah. Such a good start. I know, I know, but sometimes you do get it with some athletes that they do like to wear. Some, some things even if it's worn out completely yeah i think he's been so olympic finals i think they would be uh dust by now i imagine uh and so yeah. finally uh, over to the boxing world audley harrison gb olympic champion uh i think he was super heavyweight i believe um he would always psych himself up for a fight by having a paper bag placed over his gloves to prove that he could fight his way out of a paper bag I'd say false. <laughs> that is false. Yeah, that was uh, that was made up by me. So yeah, uh, I've, I've 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 never heard that about Audrey. So I would have <laughs> been surprised if that was true. But yeah, not too bad. Two, two eight out of ten, actually better than I thought. Yeah, I'm glad you're keeping count. Very good. Um, right, so that's the end of uh, Saved by the Spell, and now <laughs> we're going to get back to the uh, serious matter at hand. Um, 
so I think to start with, what I'm quite interested to know is uh, we're three months out. This hypothetically, let's say we're three months out from the Olympics. Um, yeah. Let's take COVID out of the equation. So let's just say the run up to the 2016 Olympics, make it easier. You're three months out. So what's the role of you and your team in preparing those fighters from three months out and then two months out, one month out, and then fight week, et cetera? Yeah, I think, I think you know, working it backwards is very important because obviously um, you need to know what is what is happening at every different stage. So, you know, we talk about prioritization, you talk about the different phases, you know, phases more intense, phases where you need to recover. So the main thing is obviously I, I manage the support team. Obviously, I would say manage, I prefer to say facilitate. Um, ultimately, it comes down to the coaches. The coaches are the ones that will dictate what they would like to do, uh, what sort of camps they'd like to do, what sorts of competitions they'd like to do. And I think for us, it's about supporting them the best way possible. So supporting the coaches to obviously, um, with the plans they're doing, that we can provide our input from a sports science and medicine team to ensure that you know we can maximize whatever they're trying to achieve. Um, are there any threats that we can see that maybe help them? Uh, but what are obviously the opportunities at the same time? And then around all that is individualizing the programs for the athletes. So you got, you know, at the end of the day, um, yes, it's a squad, but you are on your own when you are boxing in that ring. Um, so whatever you do is about supporting the individual. Does somebody need more around the technical part or the tactical part? Does somebody need more around certain elements of conditioning? Does somebody have uh, an injury which needs, you know, nursing all the way through? or uh, does somebody um, you know, just needs to keep on top of things just so that he doesn't have any recurrences because he's prone to them. So different things, obviously. So the main thing is communication. So if, if you ask me what is my role particularly, is making sure that any bits of information that is happening is that everybody's aware of things and that you know, no one day goes past, no week goes past that we're missing a trick, you know, and if we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. Um, you know, we don't leave any stone left unturned is probably the, the phrase you probably hear a lot of people talk about. People talk about the one percenters, some believe in those, some don't believe in them. But the reality is, is ensuring that any support we're doing is, because there's a difference between saying you've got a lot of people in an MDT and everybody's supporting in isolation or in a silo approach. It's making sure that everything is linked and, uh, you know, it doesn't become like lots of uh, duplication of things. You know, like if, if, for example, three or four practitioners are working with an athlete, can we maximize um, their time within the framework of the athlete rather than we take a full day for the athlete to do all the things we want them to do? So it's about planning, planning around training, understanding things, and then being reactive also. You know, as much as you plan, things can change from every day. You know, the coaches may want to change something. Maybe an athlete is feeling a bit unwell. Um, there's so many factors to consider, but it's making sure that we are on top of everything and that as you get closer to the competition, you feel confident that the athletes from athlete health, also from performance, can provide what is required from them. Yeah, and then if so, if we then fast forward to um, say the competition itself, 
I think one thing that's really interesting about boxing, in particular amateur boxing, is you often have those multiple fights. So you've worked with many gold medalists in the past. So to get to that gold medal, you've got to fight, uh, depending on the weight class, obviously, is it sort of between four and five fights? Top of my head, you yeah, have to get to five. Yeah, between four and five times. And obviously... And in a short space yeah, of time, of course, yeah. So yeah, how, how, very, how do you keep those players... Sorry. How do you keep those players, um, players those fighters... Um, at the top of their game, each of those fights, they're not tailing off towards the end. Well, a lot of it is the, the preparation you've done, not just in the in the last three months, the preparation you've done in the last four years, really. So them going to those type of competitions where they have to compete multiple times, they go to majors where they have to compete multiple times, um, they do all the conditioning work to be fit and ready for those things. They prepare themselves with, with you know, really good training camps with um, different nations to obviously test themselves against these nations. But obviously, when you are in those events, is making sure that they're doing everything that um, is good for them in an individual level. So obviously, you know, if it's a weight management thing that they're doing it the right way, and if they're fueling appropriately they're recovering well um we've got the psychologists that work together with the coaches on what is their strategy for the day so you know if it's if they're preparing for a fight on the day for example what is their uh, routine you know what do they do during the day you know because you can get tired just by sitting on on the bed all day long for example and then you're lethargic so you know things like you go for a walk what time do you eat are you seeing the physio what time are you seeing the physio uh, are you doing any conditioning work um you're probably not on the day but what are you doing the last time two days before three days before one day before so there's a lot of work that happens to understand how the athlete best responds and that will give you an idea then how they can fluctuate best possible over the days because you're right what you don't want is you know you come to your third or fourth bout and then you're flat as a pancake and you're tired uh, or you pick up an injury um you know i know injuries can happen but um especially acute injuries but are there things that we can uh, look after for to make sure that doesn't happen so you can imagine that what happens at the games it's not the first time that will happen it would have happened multiple times in those four years to make sure we know that those athletes are ready to take on that sort of challenge but equally that all the team around the athlete are ready for that challenge you know that the you know the um the support staff are fine-tuned they know exactly what they need to do for every single athlete the coaches um themselves they know but equally the support staff know how to speak to the coaches what to tell them how to work with them so last thing you need is you know surprises um because you know we weren't aware of certain things but as i said it's been very hard to have a surprise at the games having worked with those athletes on multiple events um over those those four years or even if it's less than four years because some athletes joined the program later but you still have tested those athletes so there won't be any particular new surprises yeah um Oh, yeah, I think that's really uh, that's really interesting. But so, what's the role then of a stitch man or or a cut man in the ring? Because you've done that quite a lot ringside, I believe, in the past. Yeah, well, in 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 your in your amateur in your Olympic, uh, it's a bit different. So you know, 
you can have a catman in the corner, but the way it works because of the, the, the number of rounds is also because you have a medical person appointed. Um, the doctor usually, they, they, you know, if a cut is really bad, they will more likely stop it. Um, and I think rightly so, because at Olympic level, you know, these, these athletes, they're probably, um, they're a bit younger or obviously, you know, they're not classed as your professional. It's a different ball game. Um, in the professional, you tend to have a more experienced person who deals with the cuts. Um, mm -hmm. I've been privileged to do um, cuts in the corner, particularly in, in some recent events. And I think it's, I wouldn't say it's much as similar as a physio doing a pit site. You know, if you're like rugby, if you're doing football, if you're doing LTA or cricket, it's knowing the sport. Um, obviously, the, the one thing, if you're doing it in boxing, you only have one minute um, time. So, and actually it's less by the time you've, you've gone up, by the time the athlete is set down and by the time you actually have to come back down, it goes from a minute to being less. So, you know, the, the quicker you can go uh, in the corner, the quicker you, you know what you're looking for, the quicker you know what you're doing, um, the more time you have available to deal with cuts and not just cuts in anything which is deemed important. So you take, you take an important role of being uh, a cutman, but I think the cutman is just a traditional name for what is somebody who looks after injuries in the corner. And that's why I said it's not much dissimilar um, from a, a physio, a highly experienced yeah. physio, um, dealing with um, your, your injuries in the sport, but from a pitch site management point of view, which obviously is different from dealing with somebody in a clinic. So, you know, you deal with somebody in the lead up to an event or after event versus dealing with somebody at an event, which obviously you know you've got more pressure because there's, there's obviously the spotlight uh, on you if you do if you do something wrong um but you can't think about that and that's why if you've got the experience usually you know you, you, we use the expression you know blue calm so you know you'll be you'll be calm under pressure you're just focusing on the job you're not letting adrenaline hit you or anything fluster you you know the only adrenaline that should come is after a, after a fight if everything goes well and you're celebrating with the team which is natural um although these days you can't even hug because you <laughs> get told off oh yeah and i suppose that's, that's quite a rare a rare thing in um, physiotherapy to have that real time pressure like you said normally in the clinic you have more time even in rugby or football you can't have as much time as you need I mean you have the pressure of trying to get the player back on the pitch obviously but boxing you physically have the you know seconds out etc the, the time pressure to get you in get the job done and get out again um, and obviously your time has to be shared between the coaching staff and any other issues that need to be done so that is quite interesting so what are some of the the worst injuries you've seen in the ring over the years? Well, it's usually, I mean, it's, it's, it's cuts, is it? Those are, those are the worst ones because if those bleed, first of all, you know, one, you don't want to want to make sure that you don't have um, cuts, which impact your nerves, you know, or impact, you know, certain arteries. So obviously, you know, if you, if you map the face, there are different things. If you've got your, your, your ducts also, you know, your, um, your tear ducts. So there's, there's lots of thing, different things to consider. But if the rules basically state that if blood comes and it's, it's occluding your vision, then the fight might get stopped. So it's that balance of um, making sure that they can continue to, box so that's your performance element 
versus the health of the person. So obviously you need to make sure that there isn't something there which, you know, could come back to bite you later on because, you know, the, you, 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 you didn't sort of hint that maybe that fight should be stopped. So it, it, as I said, it varies, it varies. And I think like anything else, if you are, and that's why I use the expression like pitch side, if you are um, a physio or even a doctor, it's just ensuring that when you're doing things, it's just twofold, is it? A, you'd like that person to continue because there's a performance element, but on the other side, it, health becomes a very big priority. So, and if you have less time to consider those things, what you need to make sure is you build the experience and the expertise to be able to deal with those quickly. Yeah, I mean, in your role now, but probably more prominently in your role before when you were climbing the ladder as such, um, did you find you had those moral conflicts quite often when you were torn between being the, the teammate if you like, and the the member of Team GB wanting the person to do well, wanting them to win, and then your healthcare perspective of wanting to do what's best for their health. Was that quite an often a, a conflict you found? No, because for me, there is, you know, you have, you either have black and white scenarios or you have gray scenarios. You know, the gray scenarios is where, you know, you don't have that, that um, the thing at the back of your head telling you like, that doesn't look too good. Um, and, you know, that's definitely an out thing versus somebody who's like, you know, you you feel that they can continue. And then like, as you would do, say, for example, um, if you were working in other sports, you'd monitor the situation and you see how they react. I think the other positive thing is that because it's such a, a small environment, if you think about the ring versus, you know, a rugby pitch and a football pitch where things can be lost, the focus pretty much falls on two people the two opponents. So you have to remember, you're going to have uh, the officials ringside, you're going to have the, the, the doctor ringside, you're going to have the, um, the referee in there. So you know what, if somebody's not meant to continue, they will stop it. So, and you see it a lot of times, usually, um, it's either the corner throws in the towel, so it happens, um, or the, the ref tends to stop it for X reasons, um, you know, an eye gets closed and they can't see through it. Blood is pouring through the eye and they can't see through it. Uh, the, the athlete has not recovered well from a knockdown. So the, the good thing for me is that at professional level, at least the carded bouts, you know, they are really looked after. And then at Olympic level equally, you know, you've got referees which are regulated. Um, you've got, again, there's still that focus on the two people in there. So I think there's a lot over there to help you, even as a practitioner, just to make sure that obviously you're not found out, let's put it this way. So, and, and even if you are unsure, you know, that straight away, if things don't look too well, that obviously decisions can be made. The other thing is the coaches have a very trained eye too. So, yeah. you know, looking at their athletes, you have to remember they train with these guys day in, day out. Uh, they know them really well. So if something doesn't look too good, they will know themselves and they, they will obviously, they may consult with you, but the reality is um, it's like having your, 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 your extra medical person. I think the coaches in these sports, maybe even a bit more than the other sports, they obviously want to look after their athletes because let me put it this way, obviously in rugby, you do get certain things, but sometimes you get distracted by the play. 
in boxing, you're literally seeing it very narrow vision. You can see what's happening in front of you. So if the boxer doesn't look too good, you know they will, will, will stop it themselves. So to answer your question, you're not on your own. There's lots, of, it is ultimately, even in that scenario, a very big MDT um, from your officials to your coaches to yourself who are actually helping to make sure the athlete is safeguarded. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's great. And I think the idea is of having multiple people involved sounds really productive i think a lot of sports at the moment are having a lot of scrutiny around particularly head injuries so you look at um uh, rugby's had their recent lawsuits around players having um alzheimer's and dementia um football had some similar inquests and then some problems around injury to like david Luiz recently etc um, and boxing's always had this long-standing issue when it comes to head injuries because the ultimate head injury sport is a sport where you're encouraged to knock someone out that's obviously a big part of the sport but do you think overall that boxing in 2020 or 2021 has it pretty well nailed down where they manage head injuries? Yeah, I think we're doing really well. I think, you know, there's a couple of things that um, that really help is making sure, one, your athletes are well hydrated, uh, well recovered, you know, well, well, well prepared before they're going in. Um, you know, we looked at our stats um, over the last four years, actually, and, um in GB boxing uh, from 2016 to 2020 and our concussions are really low like you know from a percentage injury like our hands and wrists are bread are bread and butter where you you probably get even up to 35 percent of the of the incidents coming from that um whereas your concussions are like your your two to five percent so it's 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 very low and uh and in fact, I mean, I know that because, you know, whenever whenever we're trying to think about doing studies um, with unboxing, um, you know, you don't, you probably don't have enough people that are showing those symptoms of concussion. Now, I think the other thing is also, you know, we talk about concussion or, or head injuries, uh, depends how you want to class it. The, uh, there's, there's still a lot of unknowns that we're still learning. Um, there's still a lot of uh, studies are looking at how to detect these things because obviously it's probably like COVID, you know, you've got asymptomatic and symptomatic positives. Um, so trying to class what a, a, a true head injury is, is probably the work that we'll probably see, especially in the next decade. Um, you know, there's, there's um, studies being done in, with, in um, I know in rugby and football, and we've also helped in boxing around that uh, using biomarkers. Um, they've used biomarkers from saliva, but markers from urine samples of cross-reference those things um, there's more learning around what are the the, the, the actual symptoms and actually the, the structures being affected by these things so I think as time goes on we'll probably learn a bit more what concussion really means and where those, those safety parameters fall but I know definitely within GB boxing one, we take them really seriously. In fact, you know, we do our baseline testing at the beginning of every year. We do scats for all the boxers. We do repeat scats when when somebody is, is suspective of having those things. Uh, we do um, a safe return to, to box protocol, very similar to rugby. In fact, you know, probably we used we use that as a template, you know, when you don't have symptoms and then you use your 24 to 48 hour um, progression. So, you know, with boxing, you probably expect somebody to take two to three weeks to start returning back, especially to sparring. You know, is the last thing you want to do is start uh, whacking people. But the other thing to consider is because boxers are learned to be hit in the head, 
they're actually their their even their musculature, their anticipation is more versed. Whereas in other sports, you know, like your rugby, your football, you know, equestrian is, is quite big on concussion. You know, they fall from horses. The one thing that happens is you don't know what's happening. Whereas in boxing, there is that sort of anticipation. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, there's always the, the shots that you weren't expecting that might drop you. Um, but, yeah. you know, it's not like they're getting cut with every shot. You know, otherwise, you know, it would negate what the sport is. And I know some people think that, but it's not the case because they are trained to do that. It's the same as saying, if, if I told you who... I don't know if you've ever boxed, but if I tell you put on your wraps and gloves and go into a boxing session, your hands will be sore. Um, whereas boxers, you know, who are versed and trained into it, their hands won't be sore because they get used to it. Yeah. So I think it's one of those things where we make sure at GB particularly, and even any of the athletes who work with even in professional sports, that we, A, we abide by all the rules, um, which is important, and that um, B, we abide by all the, the, the safety uh, measures, you know, from the research out there, from what other sports are doing. Um, so we make sure we, we import all the good practice and maintain that good practice and create those standards. Um, and that obviously we always have that that um, safeguard. I definitely know that when I started with GB probably 11 years ago to where we're now, our practices have evolved, have improved. We've learned um, over things. We definitely learned that the last thing you want to do an athlete who's symptomatic is to get them quickly back in. Um, and sometimes, you know, you actually have to sort of remind them because sometimes they're the ones that may self-choose to go back in because you're more likely to have long-term effects. And, you know, it's not dissimilar from COVID, is it? You know, athletes with symptoms, the all the research is pointing towards you need to allow the symptoms to settle. You need to return gradually. And I think, you know, I see so much similarities with concussions and COVID and that there's still a lot of unknown. Um, and the moment other than trying to push through. So, you know, and we've had athletes being being stopped. You know, you talked about the multiple bouts. Um, sometimes athletes being pulled from the next bout because they, they may have had some symptoms of concussion. And the coaches have, have really helped with that. Uh, sometimes they're the ones that identify it before we identify it as, as practitioners. Um, sometimes somebody has, has missed going to a competition because of that. Sometimes you pull them out of training. So, you know, there's the different scenarios. But as I said in the very beginning, luckily, the episodes have definitely decreased from what they used to be. And partly is probably even with the rules, you know, they removed the headguards for the man. Um, you know, I think we used to see more concussions because people used to butt heads into each other, whereas now they don't do it as much. So although they do punch each other, they, I think a lot of the probably concussions used to happen also is, you know, the head to head contact, uh, you know, almost like a whiplash type effect because sometimes you may be not expecting that. Um, and also there's some speculation around maybe even the, the head guard creating bigger uh, momentum. Um, maybe not as much as your American football, because obviously, you know, the American football have that um, part coming out. So if you clip that, you've increased that fulcrum, that leverage um, yeah. in, in your torsion. But um, equally, you still have a little bit more where to clip somebody and create that rotation. Um, so, yeah, I think probably summarize this we definitely 
are ensuring that we have the best practice available in whatever we're doing. And like anything else, we just are open to what is happening in the world and what is the best advice. And don't forget, obviously, apart from boxing, we liaise with all the other Olympic and Paralympic sports. So we import all the information coming from our external partners, universities who do research on that or other sports, see what they are doing, you know, Hockey can get concussions from being hit with a stick. Uh, taekwondo can get a concussion from being hit by a foot. Um, you know, your rugby sevens to go to the Olympics, you know, again, they get, you know, a bit like your normal, like your your traditional rugby. So we, we obviously ensure that, you know, we are speaking to our colleagues and learning um, what they do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's really important is sharing of information. You're right. What you, you can learn so much from rugby or hockey or, anything and they can learn so much from you so it's so important i mean gb is quite clearly a front runner when it comes to this uh concussion protocols and i imagine injury on the whole but do you feel all the other olympic nations are as committed as you are when it comes to managing athletes around head injuries around injuries in general Uh, definitely i can speak for the uk you know obviously there's 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 a lot of investment into the into UK sports, the English Institute of Sports, and obviously all the all the uh, Olympic and Paralympic sports that's particularly going now to the to the games. Um, hopefully, you know, in the summer, um, speaking with a lot of colleagues um, in all these um, sports, you know, from your doctors to your physios, and we have lots of different opportunities to cross. Um, relate the information that we have in our sports. So it's not just everybody keeps in silent, hides us away. People actually speak to each other, which is fantastic. I think because of all that, and obviously, you know, thanks to the government for the investment that they put in that. So you obviously have a high wealth of expertise of sports science and medicine. Then I'd say, yes, we are definitely um, probably one of the the four, the, 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 um, the forerunners, you know, where it comes to the front runners, where it comes to um, the protocols. So um, I can't compare with other nations as such, uh, because obviously sometimes you're not as privy to what they do. But definitely what I can say that in this country, in the UK, I would probably say we are in the golden era of sports science and medicine. Um, and it's not just not just obviously um, Olympic and Paralympics, you know, even your professional sports, you know, your LTA, your cricket, your rugby, your football, everybody is trying to do best practice. Everybody's employing, you know, y- y- your best scientists, your best doctors, your best physios available. Everybody wants to work, I, I would like to believe also in, in Britain because, you know, it does provide a fantastic opportunity for development, for growth as a practitioner, but also to be part with, with big names and big um, big teams. So because of that, I, I want to believe that everybody's pulling in the right direction. And that's why I go and say, I don't think even in a sporting nation, we don't work in silos because I know I speak with colleagues in the professional world and they speak with me, they ask me questions, I ask them questions and equally within the Olympic sports, Paralympic sports, we share knowledge too. So definitely, I'd want to believe we are definitely in that sort of um, front front running and whether we we publish the information or not, there is a lot of expertise, 100%. Yeah. yeah, to take, I've got an interesting point to, to carry on about that actually. But firstly, you mentioned in there working in Britain. Um, I didn't realize this, but I found out in my research you're actually from uh, Malta. That's that's correct, isn't it? 
Um, yeah. So did you did you come here primarily to work with the GB setup, or did you come here for another reason? Well, initially when I left when I left um, uh, Malta, I actually went to Greece because that's where the next Olympics was going to be. So I left Malta to 2000. Um, the Olympics was going to be 2004, and I managed to work with um, Olympic athletes from Greece uh, around that period, and then went down to the game. So it was a great uh, opportunity. But then in 2005, I decided I wanted to one further my studies, but also my career. So I did a master's in Cardiff around 2005, 2006, and then they announced London as the as the next games. Um, obviously, it was would have been Beijing in between, but they um, London got the bid for 2012, and obviously I realized one with. Uh, the experience I had at the time, I wouldn't say it was massive, but obviously I had an Olympic cycle under my belt and with, with the knowledge that um, there obviously is going to be a build up towards that, I definitely felt it would be the right place to, to, to stay. So 2007, I joined the IS as the, the head physio for GB Volleyball at the time, did a two-year stint and then moved over to boxing and I've been with them since then, since 2009. So you know, I think I got the flavor of London 2012, which was fantastic. And then I knew that there was still more to come, um, not just from a games point of view, because I think sometimes people see the games and they see the pinnacle. Uh, it, the games is great, but it's the four years leading to it, which is the amazing part of it. The process, the journey, the building of structures, the building of team, you know, I see myself in my, my own personal development and even in the people around me. So. I think definitely as an organization, particularly GB Boxing has grown fantastically, great people, you know, we call ourselves a family. Um, and I think that's true. You know, we've got a fantastic performance director and, and a CEO, but also all the team around it. So I think sometimes you, you, you do see where you'd like to get to in a way, but um, sometimes the, the path takes uh, sort of a different route. Like I didn't see myself in, in boxing initially, not because I didn't see myself, but because it wasn't something that um, like I could easily have been in other sports. Uh, so when I joined boxing in 2009, um, I probably saw it as a fantastic opportunity, but I saw it as any other sport that I had been because I had a wide breadth. But if you ask me now, a decade later, um, you probably, you know, the, 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 the fact that I've been here now 11 years and counting with boxing probably indicates that I fell in love with the sports and I've given so much to it, but equally I've gained a lot uh, from it, from an, an experience point of view. So, and I know there's still more to come. So like anything else, uh, I probably feel privileged to have managed to actually be in the sport for literally what is now three Olympic cycles. And now we've already started a fourth Olympic cycle. Well, yeah, fantastic. I think there's been a real change in um, the kind of media and perception around British boxing, probably over the last sort of 10 years. and. Uh, that's come with perhaps some of the leading names that come out of the program, perhaps in just the way it's portrayed. But um, it seems to be you right, like a real tight knit family, a real close, a close team. But I want to get on to, so I was doing some reading beforehand and I came across, uh, you mentioned these two projects you worked on in the lead up to 2016. Uh, it was called Cuts and Knuckles. Well, those are two different projects. And I believe it was around improving the availability of your boxers ahead of the Olympics. Could you talk a little bit around that for me? 
Yeah, well, you know, first of all, we're lucky because, you know, one, we've got affiliations with universities, but also within the, the English Institute of Sport, we've got different departments that can assist us from, you know, athlete health to research and innovation. So, you know, if you can, if you come up with a, with a viable project, a viable idea, then you get to explore it in detail. And it's not like just saying, oh, I've got a proposal and let's go ahead. It's, it's, it's a tedious process. But those were two projects we looked at at the time. And actually the great thing about it is like with, with the Knuckles project was a project that actually um, we found better materials that we can use for our Knuckles. So materials that were researched that are not widely commonly available but actually that we've researched and imported into boxing and actually have improved the health of uh, our boxers especially around the hands and wrists as i said before the the, the hands and wrists are uh, the highest incidence of injuries you almost expect it you know you're hitting with these with these tools um so we do a lot we've done a lot of work around prevention you know your bandaging techniques your conditioning um but definitely within the bandaging that element of protection so what you use on the knuckle became really good and so we, we actually when we looked at the stats we did like six months before sorry we did a year before a year after we saw that we had a 50 percent reduction in in injury incidents at the time and even when you get injuries it's more likely than to help severity and then with with the cuts project basically was seeing looking at what can we do a, to prevent cuts from happening, looking at the skin, the quality, preparation, hydration, all those things. But then if you do get a cut, what can you do? If you get a cut in the corner, if you get a cut, um, and obviously you need to compete the following day. So we did quite a few things around it. And, that, you know, probably linking a little bit also with my uh, uh, bit of the experience around being in the corners as, as a cut man, as you mentioned earlier. I think it's nice because obviously I've learned quite a lot of things in that project around the cuts, uh, things that we can do if somebody gets, you know, a cut two days before a training camp um, or during a training camp or two cuts uh, or a cut, as I said, um, in, a, in a competition where then they have to box the following day. So there's a difference between your professional and amateur is that they have to go maybe the following day. So is there anything you can do to make sure that the cut doesn't bleed and open and then, you know, they get stopped by the medic in the corner. Um, and we found different things, things that obviously um, we've exported to other sports because they asked about those things and actually um, certain sports, you know, have, have um, imported that knowledge and the materials. Um, and it's definitely made uh, performance advantage um, around the games 2016 um, and between 2016 and now the same you know it just keeps on going so you know it's 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 great to see that you can do things within the rules of the of the games within the rules of the sport um within the the health of the athletes you know doing something far out and actually trying to improve practice and sometimes what comes at the end of it sometimes looks very simple if i if i put it this way but to get to that the process has been immense and hard use, the, the, the people involved, the time effort involved, um, sometimes the economics involved when you're looking at certain things. And so that's why I feel that, as I said, you know, it's a privilege to work uh, not just with boxing, but um, as part of the English Institute of Sports, because they're the, they're the ones that support us when we have viable ideas that can help to, and, you know, I think like anything else, you start with a little nugget. It's nice to see at the end of it that you do come up with something which is, which is useful, which is tangible. It's not just an idea that, A, 
didn't get anywhere, um, which would have been shameful, or mm. B, that you had an idea and that you never tried to explore it. Um, you know, you just sort of like, yeah, I had an idea, but, you know, never thought it might work. So I just never talked about it. And I think, you know, it's important for people to, to have that belief, to push things, to have, think a little bit also away from normal practice. You know, if you are a physio, sometimes it's easy to think just physio. But when it comes to injury and illness, it's good to think around the wider spectrum and how to engage your your MDT, support staff, your coaches, your athletes. You know, I think within, within these projects, one of the best things for me was how we engaged the coaches, how we asked for their um, uh, experience and their thoughts, how we, we spoke with the athletes also. You know, we asked what they thought about things. Um, and then when we trial things, again, we asked them, what do they think? And I, I think... It was that balance between uh, objective information and subjective. You know, sometimes it's just getting, you know, we talk even these days with research about quantitative and qualitative and whether we should be doing more qualitative research in, for example, physiotherapy. And I, I'm one of those that believe that you shouldn't stop the quantitative to do the qualitative, but you need more of that, true. You need to increase asking your stakeholders what they think otherwise all you have is just numbers and data and the end user will just think like it's useless or it doesn't yeah. work so you know you have to have that pragmatic approach of things will work and things are comfortable and things look nice for example so we went with all that and you know as i said um there are more projects like that that we've done as, a, as an mdt but those are two projects which definitely for the rio cycle um were two things which you know you've picked up and actually they are they are two standouts for me great and um so on a personal point of view do you see yourself perhaps having a long-term future in academia full-time or do you always see this as being a a bit on the side so to speak yeah it's like um like anything else you, you can never say never you know never know where where the roads take you because like anything else you always have to be open to what comes um being from a mediterranean background i like tapas so i like to have my hands in different things because mm. you learn from different things as long as you can manage it you know i think you know is, is is that that balance of not doing too much that you're overloaded and then you can't give the right attention to the individual things obviously first and foremost my loyalty to to the sports that i'm working with and the managing and then obviously you know the other commitments um you know so whether it is the teaching which i do um teaching either through universities or teaching on the sides doing the courses um you've, you've mentioned in the very beginning i'm doing a phd uh, on risk biomechanics and boxing you know learned a lot over the years from that and obviously want to finish that one um you know work with with some private clients do consultancy for different sports and uh, so i learn obviously what happens in other sports around particularly your hands wrists and even the rest of the upper limb so that variety for me is, is is really something which I love because when I put it all together though, it is the one experience. It's not one thing is completely different than the other or has nothing to do with the other. It's like one thing brings the knowledge to something else. So, you know, if I'm teaching, I'm learning things which I'm going to bring into practice. If I'm practicing, I'm going to put that thing into teaching. Um, and, and even the management skills, you know, the leadership then goes even in communication skills with, with the 
person in front of me, uh, the athlete, or even online. You know, I've 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 shared um, lots of, for example, even if they're one to one or or uh, bigger, wider Zoom meetings, and that experience has helped me um, share my teaching or even share an online consultation. So that's what I mean. You know, everything that that you do as long as it's interlinked in a good way, then it's really nice to do. So I think I probably struggle just to do the one thing, just because probably I've always done many things. Um, but I love it. I love the people that I meet, the the, the variety and, and what it brings, uh, obviously. So if, if you ask me what, what you'd like to do, yeah, because there's a difference, what would I like to do versus what could happen? Uh, I definitely would like to continue doing what I'm doing, if I could, you know, I love boxing, I love GB, I love working with, um, you know, the EIS, I like working in, in, in academia also, and as long as it coincides together and people are happy with what I'm providing in all the spectrum, happy days. Oh yeah, great. Um, I must say I subscribe to that same model of having my fingers in many different pies, and I think um, I think that's the right way to do things, I think you're definitely right there. Um, so when we first started chatting uh, about a month ago now, I think it was, planning this podcast, you put out that potential title of the good, the bad and the ugly of managing injuries in sport. Uh, now, I think we've covered the good pretty well and I think we've touched on the bad. But I'm quite intrigued as to what you class as the ugly behind managing injuries. Um, so give me some thoughts around that. Yeah, for me, the ugly really, I think it comes down to the athlete sometimes, to be completely honest. The, the ugly for me is when you, you've created the best plan possible for, for the athlete and, you know, they keep missing sessions or they don't do their bits um, and maybe they've stayed a bit, you know, they, they, they've overdone themselves on the weekend and then suddenly they're ill and you miss a bit for more weeks. So think the ugly, you know, you call it ugly. It's, it's things that you have to expect with the job. And I don't think there's any any practitioner who works in full-time sports particularly who doesn't come across it. But I, I call it the ugly because, you know, you know that if, if um, the athlete adheres to what you're asking out of them collectively as a team, that they will achieve the goals that you have set for them. And the ugly is that, you know, they don't adhere to that for whatever reason. So, you know, it's either behavioral or there are actually other things that maybe they actually have good behaviors, but uh, maybe there's certain lifestyle things that take them away. So, you know, maybe they have to care for somebody in the family who's ill at the moment. We know there's COVID, so that can take them away. And because of all that, then the ugly means that they miss out of major competitions, being eligible to going to a qualifier or maybe going to a games. Um, hopefully we won't see any uglies, um, you know, this year. Hopefully, you know, you see a few goods and bads, but the bads you can turn into goods. Um, I think, you know, touch wood, we've always managed to, even when somebody has bad injuries, because we're, we're good at the planning and work backwards and we have a very strong team ethos um, that we managed to bring the athletes to peak when they need to peak and we can manage them at, at the competition at the highest levels. Um, but, you know, like anything else, you have to be waiting for, for anything. So for me, one of the uglies uh, at the moment, one of the biggest unknowns is somebody picking up COVID just a few days before going to, to uh, a major tournament or an Olympic qualifier. So, you know, the best thing you can do is educate, give the advice, 
uh, keep making sure everybody's doing the right things, the protocols, the reminders. Um, so you do everything you can, everything you can possible. But, you know, it's so easy to pick up this unknown, um, very infectious um, virus, as we all know. So literally, you could probably go out, pick up the latter, and maybe the post, the postman has sneezed on the latter, for all you know, and all you need to touch your face after that, that you pick up COVID. So I don't think, you know, if you are really, really on it, um, your chances of getting it reduced, but you reduce the risk doesn't mean you're not going to get it. It's like an injury. Prevention is only as good as you try and reduce the risk, but it doesn't mean you're not going to get it especially if it is in the nature of that particular sport. So for me, that's the ugly really, is the things that you try to your best abilities and then sometimes you get a curveball and you just think like, it's just a shame um, because all the time, the energy, the investment, but also we, we care about these, these athletes, we care them as people. You know, you want them to succeed. You want them to go to the games. You want them to win a medal, turn professional, do really good for themselves. You know, we have some fantastic athletes who have um, great uh, track records. Um, you know, Nicole Adams, uh, Anthony Joshua, Josh Boazzi, you know, and you, you can keep on mentioning lots of athletes that went from GB to do really well after Olympic Games and obviously won a medal. And even ones that didn't go to the Olympic Games, but because they've, they've done really well with us, you know, they went on to achieve. So, for me, uh, the ugly is not seeing people reach the potential they could achieve. Yeah, and I mean, when it's out of someone's hands to so say the, the reason they didn't achieve what they wanted was due to injury, um, have you had to give that bad news to someone before that perhaps their wrist injury isn't going to heal or they've had too many concussions and like that? Well, yeah, sometimes we've had to give, you know, especially when you're getting close to a particular tournament, um, you, you have to give that information that obviously they can't compete or that you had to pull them out from a tournament. Uh, luckily, touch wood, we've never had to pull out somebody from the biggest tournament, which is the games. But, you know, sometimes even at majors, you have to balance whether it's the right thing or not to, to pull them out. And luckily, you're you're not there to take the decision on your own. You give the advice to the coaches, you tell them, you speak to the athlete. Um, if it's a black and white situation, I think obviously you will tell them that it is a black and white situation. It's not like, yeah, we could get through it. If we could get through it, as long as you have a good way of monitoring things, then it's one of those where you can tell them, look, we can try, we'll see how it goes. But you know, it might be that you're not 100% in your performance. So, you know, like anything else, you know, we are professionals at the end of the day, but equally we want we want people to perform, but it has to be balanced, as we said, even in this podcast, is between performance and health. Um, but, you know, we've got fantastic coaches, a fantastic program. And to be fair, the athletes know the score. You know, if you tell an athlete something, they will understand it. You know, we've never had any athletes like, you know, um, do something stupid because, you know, they've been told they can't compete or whatever. They'll be upset, you know, it's human nature, but we're, we're, we're a big team and we can support them. And ultimately, they know that any decision we do, uh, we, we, we take is on their behalf. No decision is taken lightly. So, and that's why you need experienced people around them because you, you know the difference between sometimes allowing them to participate and not. You know, it's the same in football, is it? If somebody has a lot of experience with, say, example, the hamstring injuries and somebody pulls a hamstring, is it something that they can 
continue the game? Is it something they can maybe play the following day? Or is it a complete no-no? And the more experience you have, the more people around you and the more um, even equipment, if that's uh, available, then the more you can take informed decisions. Yeah, no, uh, fantastic. And I think uh, we're sort of heading towards the end of um, the interview. Uh, but a few things to finish, really. Firstly, could you give me three piece of, pieces of advice you'd give a young boxer or perhaps just a young athlete in general? Well, a young boxer, I'd say, um, first of all, um, seek out um, information to help you, so education. Um, I know, obviously, there's a lot of information that in the last decade has been put out there. I know also at GB, we've put information um, uh, that has gone down to the home nations and at clubs. What I mean by that is learn to look after yourself. Yeah, so particularly hands and wrists as a starter, learn how to bandage well, what material to use, what gloves to use, very important. So that's your equipment, um, how to condition your hands um, to look after them. Uh, I, I know we even did um, um, uh, an education um, session with, with a provider um, that, uh, that look after sort of like that educate athletes and, and coaches um, on, on Instagram and obviously they've shared that information even on Twitter. So the information is widely available out there. Uh, equally, you know, with, with looking after themselves as an athlete is learning also like um, what to eat, when to eat, how to eat, you know, how to manage their weight. You know, I'm not an expert in that area. I'm not a nutritionist. I've learned a lot from our nutritionist on site, but definitely I'd say, you know, your the injuries and the weight management are two very big, important things. And then the other thing is obviously is, is uh, listen to your corner. You know, if you are working with, with coaches um, and, you know, and they do put together some tactics uh, for them in the corner, it's important that, you know, uh, you, you agree to those tactics before you go in. And then I know sometimes you have to adapt, but it's, I think it helps because obviously um, it's easier than to judge that performance after that. And, and again, I know this is very much a coaching area, but uh, it's, it's very important in my opinion that, you know, there's that good affinity, that they work really well with them. The, the final thing for me, if you, somebody's an amateur boxer, I think one of the strongest messages I can send is, is go through the Olympic um, pathway, you know, because it's very easy to think, oh, I'll just go professional. But you can see the difference between boxers who have gone through the Olympic pathway. You know, they've gone through the home nations, they've gone to competitions with the home nations. So obviously England, Wales and, and, uh, and Scotland, you know, they've gone to competitions with these. Uh, maybe, you know, they've been on assessment camps. Maybe they've been selected and they've come into GB. Um, so, you know, if somebody manages actually to get on GB, you know, then they are competing internationally with with people from all over the world, uh, seasoned boxers a lot of times, that gives somebody the pedigree to be able then, when they eventually decide to turn professional, to have more um, pedigree under their belt, to be have more even more exposure. I think this notion of turning professional straight away, especially if you're young, I'd say, you know, it's up to you, end of the day, you know, but I think the advice is um, try and go to the amateur route because like anything else, you get a lot out of it and your career can be much better. You might have a longer career as a result of that because um, 
I, I want to believe that every one of the boxes that particularly has gone through the Olympic Games, you can see how successful they've been after that. Um, and even when they've lost, they've lost with style. You know, they've been really, really good performance. It's just that the person um, who they box were better than them on the day. So, and I think that's one of the things that you can only learn through going through that um, Olympic route and learning from our fantastic coaches. You know, we've got fantastic coaches, really seasoned coaches, great PD, but then also you learn a lot from the sports science and medicine team that's over there. And if it's not at GB level, even at home nations level, you've got a lot of expertise that can help from the coaches to sports science. So that's the one thing I'd say. Um, and equally, if you get a problem, if you have an injury, something which is really giving you a headache and so on and so forth on, reach out to people who have experience. You know, I've, I've, I've had lots of um, boxers sometimes approach me and say, you know, I've had this injury for 12 months, 18 months as an example. I've seen lots of different people. You know, I think the more these they can find the experts, um, straight away, not, 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 you know, straight away, like in, in the first few days or whatever, but if you're struggling for a long time, you know, three months, six months, don't wait, try and get in touch and obviously find the, the experts that can give you a, a better bit of information. It's not just physio, you know, it could be a doctor, it could be SNC, it could be a performance lifestyle, you know, we've got lots of experts um, in GB that potentially can provide even some, some uh, private uh, help if, if needs be. Yeah, I mean, that's really important. Seek, seek help, like you said. Um, but also linking back to your first point, don't be afraid to educate yourself in some ways. And particularly if you're a young athlete or if you're an athlete perhaps who isn't in the very elite level, um, sometimes, you know, your local gym might not have all the information you need. So don't be afraid to find out, read research papers, find out which foods are great for energy or which exercises are great? Is it better to train more days, less days? Uh, the information's out there, um, written by experts. You just go out and access it. And sometimes, you know, your parents don't always know best or your the, the guy at the gym doesn't always know best because sometimes they just know wives' tales. Just go to the source information and when possible, access people like you, um, or physiotherapists or local experts because they can really give you the best information possible. Um, so, so yeah, so sort of to finish really this section, um, and I really, I appreciate I've sort of sprung this on you, which probably isn't fair because you've probably got so many memories, but could you give me like three particular highlights from your boxing career? Uh, probably the, the first one was London, uh, the Olympic Games, because obviously it was, um, you know, as I said, I had, I had gone to Greece, I'd gone to the games, probably that was my first Olympics. And I probably would put, put that as probably one of my, my highlights. But because you said boxing, probably London 2012, because it was a home Olympics, lots of hype. We went in that sort of what we'd class as a bubble in itself. We probably didn't realize how much hype there was outside of that bubble. Mm. Um, and obviously being there, you know, uh, having athletes going all the way till the end. So, you know, having like people like Anthony Joshua, like Nicole Adams, um, um, your Luke Campbell's, you know, winning winning gold medals. Um, so for me, that was a fantastic experience as, as, a, as a physiotherapist. Um, and equally, I know I just mentioned London 2012, but obviously, you know, even having been to Rio, having been to different Commonwealth Games and majors and this sort of thing. I think the, um, probably the second highlight still again with GB Boxing is, is even taking on this role as head of performance. 
So obviously going from what was, was more of a, a physiotherapist in, in sort of like, I wouldn't say silo or isolation, but going from that mentality of being a practitioner to then becoming more of that um, managing to see it from the different lenses of the different um, MDT. Because sometimes we, we, we talk about the MDT, but the reality is when you are a practitioner, sometimes you still look in your own um, in your own backyard, you always try and focus more on your bits. Um, and actually, having taken on this role, I can see a bit more um, how I was a bit more biased, probably at the time, uh, even if, when I thought that I knew more about the MDT. And actually, I can see it more from the different lenses now because I take a bit more of an uh, unbiased approach to how the different disciplines see it. And probably the third highlight for me is, you know, it's worth mentioning is, is working with, with Anthony Joshua more as a privilege. You know, I've been in his corner in the last um, few fights. I've been in his uh, working with him. Um, and the privilege isn't because, you know, it's saying Anthony Joshua is Anthony Joshua. It's because obviously I was in London 2012 with him um, yeah. as a practitioner, wrapping his hands and obviously... Um, you know, being part of his of his, his his supporting entourage as he's winning something so fantastic, and then 2012 fast forward to 2020. So you know, you've got eight years later that I'm still privileged to still be part of of this athlete who has reached immense heights, um, still bandage his hands, still be part of the entourage, um, still be part of sort of even a lot of uh, the practitioners that support him or practitioners that were with me at the time. So again. Again, is that familiarity so i think that's a highlight in itself um so you know all of these are great highlights of of of, of my my personal career um but i think on top of that the icing on the cake for me is definitely is is all the people i've met over the years all the colleagues all the interactions i've had as a result of the sport you know again going back to the dpd the ceo the coaches all the support stuff within all the is practitioners you know the, the number of people I've come across is immense, and and that's that's a privilege to the sport. You know of working in elite sports. Obviously, it takes a toll because you, you do lots of man hours. Um, I definitely had a black beard when I started, so <laughs> it's gone white in the last the last decade. Um, but uh, the the memories are are immense. You know, every trip is a memory. Every every day is a memory because no 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 one day for me is the same. Um, I don't work nine to five. I work whatever I need to to whatever I need to. Um, I have a degree of flexibility which I create, but obviously it's linked to what are the demands of the sport. So I think that for me in its own way is, is, is great memories all put together. So that's why, although you can try and pick out three, I'd probably keep on going forever because the, the memories are, are fantastic. Well, yeah, exactly. Understandable. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, Anthony Joshua is the big standout name, perhaps on your CV. Uh, obviously, you know, was he free, free, free world title belts he has at the moment, I think. Um, I assume you're going to you continue working with him into 2021 or will your Olympic cycle get in the way of that? No, it, it, as I said, like anything else, you know, you 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 always feel privileged and you have to be humbled a bit that you're working, whether it is GB Boxing or AJ or anybody else, really. Um, and it comes down to the team. You know, if the team feel that um, they want to continue working with me and obviously if I'm in, in a... In a 
capability of working with them and obviously that there's you know there's no conflict uh, with with the work i'm doing and obviously I always make sure that in anything i do there's no conflict i never miss deadlines i'm you know try and be you know use the phrase ultra professional with everything i'm doing you know if i set a deadline of something needs doing that i do it um, and then it comes down to the team. So, you know, if you ask me, would you want to continue working? Of course, you know, I, I love the work I do with uh, any of the facets I do, you know, the different facets I do um, that I've mentioned before. But it does come down to what is what they feel as a team is best for them at the time. Um, you know, if they tell me, look, you know, we don't want to continue working with you, um, like anybody else, you're human, you'd feel gutted, but you, you obviously have to understand that it's in the best interest of the team that they feel and you don't take it personal. Um, and then and then obviously you move on. But ideally, you know, as I said, I've been collaborating with him for the last eight years, more than eight years actually, because he joined the program 2010, uh, GB Boxing, so it was the last decade. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to be, to be able to continue supporting him till, you know, he decides to hang the gloves. If, if uh, you know, if it's five years, 10 years from time, whenever he decides, you know, I'll continue supporting him as, as much as he wants to be supported. And again, it's not just me. We have to remember, it's a team, you know, there's, there's other practitioners, other, um, um, other MDT working with him. So, you know, I'm not going to claim that I'm the only person there, far from it. We are a team. There's the admin team, there's the management team, there's the, the medical team, the, the sports science team you know everybody working together same as gb um but you know working around the athletes to make sure we support them in, in the best way possible yeah i mean i was actually going to wrap it up there but just to briefly touch on that point i think it's quite interesting um so obviously you've worked in for 10 years now in anti-joshua uh how do you think how do you find it's different working with the amateur athlete at the start of his career and then the professional athlete world champion now um, is there a big difference in your role or is it ultimately the same thing, just in a different context? No change, no change. What I mean by that is that he's he's the same athlete in my eyes. You know, he's a great athlete, great personality, still remains humble. You know, even at the heights, he's reached uh, ultra professional and everything he does. Um, always was even you know uh, when he first started you could see that pedigree straight away and he's continued doing to now um, and so my role is the same you know uh, I'm going to use the phrase I'm just a simple physio and that's the reality I am a simple physio at the end of the day uh, when I'm working with him so I, I'm there to support him and as any physio would do in sports what do you do you try and reduce the incidence of potential injuries. You try and make sure that you liaise with the other professionals because you can't do it on your own. It's not just about, you, you don't you don't manage elite athletes or even to be fair, you don't manage a, a, any person by putting them on a table and treating them, is it? You manage them by, you know, educating them, giving them the information, working with the other professionals to support you. You know, does, it, does he need more strength and conditioning in certain areas? Does he need more recovery? Does he need to train more? Actually, he can do it, great. Or does he need to train less? Um, we do all that, but ultimately, you know, he is his own athlete. He is his own boss. He knows his own body. So, and and uh, you know, we it's not about we tell somebody to do something and they do it. It has to be a conversation. You know, if you're working today, you said you know you had, you had a long day, and you know, uh, if, if you are working in MSK, you, you'd know that 
you don't tell somebody do this and they're going to jump and do it, is it? Um, it's a conversation. You're trying to obviously influence them to do it based on your experience. But, you know, if they decide not to do it, it is um, their choice. And then sometimes um, when they do it, they sometimes prove you right that actually they can do it right and you learn from it sometimes you know it goes the other way where you know things get picked up and then obviously you try and manage it later but uh, as i said nothing has changed he's the same athlete in my eyes and um you know we, we just we just manage him as a as, as a team as i manage him we support him because you know uh, a person should manage themselves we are there just to provide the right level of support well, yeah, and I, and I suppose the more experienced the athlete becomes, the more knowledge they'll have themselves. So then I suppose the more advice you can give as opposed to having to really push people. Like you mentioned before, potentially some of the ugly side of it when it comes to like motivation, people following a program. I imagine once you become a free belt world champion, you don't struggle so much for motivation. Um, I imagine that'd be the case. Yeah, and I mean, it varies, you know, you know, he, he particularly like, you know, the motivation is there 100%, but you wouldn't be surprised some athletes as they get um, further into their career, sometimes it gets harder. So motivation, really, they have to dig deep or equally, sometimes they, uh, they, they think that they know everything. And so obviously, they, they might decide not to take on the advice because they think that they know better than the person in front of them. Now, you obviously have to be humbled by that in a way. You know, if somebody's is, is, is had a career of 10, 15 years, 20 years as an athlete, you know, you coming to tell them new things, you have to be cautious. You, you know, if some if you go to your mother who's always been doing the same stew for the last 20 years and been doing it relatively well, you, you tell her you need to add these spices now she's going to look at you in a particular way is it? it's like what do you mean by that um you need to obviously come with a particular approach and try and explain or justify what you're trying to do but as i said every athlete is different some athletes become more motivated as they get further into their career some become less um we're lucky because you know the, the athletes uh, we work with the, the motivation is there um because either they have the games coming up or in the case of you know you mentioned um the big man you know he's got you know important fights coming up so he'll definitely be 100 motivated any fight really because no fight is easy no fight is easy even though people think they are they're not easy no no definitely not um so i think we're going to sort of wrap it up there i like to always give my guests an opportunity to have any other business so if there's anything else from the world of boxing or sport you want to discuss feel free yeah, so the only thing for me is, um, as a lot of people know, um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram, you know, share different posts or obviously sometimes get um, involved in discussions, threads and everything. But one of the things we post there is obviously the education bits we do, whether they are like um, evening CPDs or working through universities, but obviously for accessibility, um, you know, we do different courses, particularly we do the ones um, currently through Encore, um, the one day hand and wrist, sporting hand and wrist and the two day sporting upper limb masterclass. The one day has gone online, as I mentioned earlier in, in, in our interview today. So obviously we've got dates in March and May. So if you are interested, go there. The two day, obviously, because of COVID, went from being face to face in February. We postponed it to June. However, in the pipeline, obviously working behind the scenes, 
to be able to to create a, an online platform. Uh, but as I said, I don't want to just do two days of online and then people get super tired. So yeah. obviously, I have to put in a lot of put a lot of work to be able to create almost like pre-live material in order for people to actually then enjoy it a bit more. So they they probably be a bit more time involved those are my weekends taken up working on 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 the courses but equally there's a lot of um, education material that is going out there so you can find things on um like uh, physio plus and physio network and uh, uh, obviously uh, clinical edge you know actually there's there's a tree tree which we did um i think it was not even last year the year before which are which are still free and you can access them around the hands and wrists so you know as as you go along there's there's lots of providers out there which have actually provided information and still i am so i reckon between now and the end of um, this year there'll definitely be a lot of availability uh, trust me Ed is another one I didn't mention uh, we, we did two um, two for him so uh, which actually are, are currently available so there's, there's a lot of work over there to try and disseminate knowledge in different ways particularly around hands and wrists which I know a lot of people find hard um, but even the rest of the upper limb you know trying to give a bit of flavor especially from me coming from that um, full-time sporting environment so those those are the main things, I suppose. And then, you know, if you if you want to get in touch, feel free. Do get in touch. Um, I try and answer whenever I can. You know, people have, have, have texted me on again both LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter asking questions and more than happy to answer whatever I can really. Okay, great. And um I will add those links to the show notes, but do you want to just remind people of your Instagram handle and your Twitter handle? Yeah, um, trying to remember those, but you can find me on under um, the uh, Ian Ian Gat Gatman or the Boxing Physio sometimes. So if you look at LinkedIn, you can find that uh, the Boxing Physio um, or Twitter or even Instagram. So um, yeah, look for those, and and you you should find me. Okay, perfect. So just to round up, thanks a lot for joining me, Ian. I think you've had some really interesting points, and I'm sure my listeners will agree. Thank you very much, Chris, and obviously to anybody who has the, the patience to listen to me um, and hope you obviously enjoy the, the information that's been provided um, today to, in collaboration with uh, Curtis. Okay, great. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, after one hour, 20 minutes of content here at the Hips and Dips podcast, we have ourselves a split decision. Here are the score totals. Judge 1 scores the bout at 115-111. Judge 2 scores the bout at 110-116. And Judge 3 scores the bout at 113-113. Meaning tonight's bout is a draw. A draw means perhaps Mansfield versus Gat 2 is on the cards for later in the year. Always fascinating to get an insight from inside the GB camp and understand more about the demands of boxing and the important job that MDT team does keeping those fighters competing and contributing to the overall squad success, especially the prolonged success which has been seen by GB boxing. One of those fighters is Fraser Clark, who I've already recorded an interview with, which will be going live in a few weeks. 
um, towards the end of the month. So uh, please stay tuned. And for more information, visit the Instagram, which is at hips underscore and underscore dips with a Z for more details on the episode and release dates. This week, the sad news broke that Captain Tom has passed away from COVID-19. It's quite rightly received quite a large public outpouring of emotion, which is justified due to the inspirational role he played throughout, particularly the early part of that pandemic. Firstly, I would love to offer my deepest condolences for Tom's family. Uh, but what I'd really like to do is extend that offer to all families who have lost loved ones in recent days. I've witnessed myself, people as young as 30 dying, and very often they die without any family nearby. And those family members are left to grieve in the car park by themselves, which is, which is obviously tragic. And we now find ourselves at a rather sickening point when we've reached 110,000 deaths here in the UK alone. I also found myself reminiscing about that first lockdown almost a year on and thinking about how things have changed. This lockdown has been different, admittedly, partly due to the weather and largely due to the government's inability to define the rules and what is actually essential and non-essential and then convey those messages. But also cultural attitudes have differed. I was in a black hole of random YouTube videos the other day and I came across various music releases like the BBC releasing times like these with special guests and McFly with Niall Horan, etc., releasing Shine a Light. Old men were walking rap laps around their garden and people were doing keepy-ups with toilet rolls. Maybe we, we need to reignite that spirit from 12 months ago. Bring back the quiz nights on Zoom. Will someone please try and put on a t-shirt while simultaneously trying to do a handstand? And for the love of God, will someone please tag me in a post for necking a dirty pint? For all our sakes. Remember to check out at hips underscore and underscore dips on Instagram or at hips underscore dips on Twitter or check out Ian Gatman for more information on Ian and what he's up to at the moment. And I've had some really nice feedback in recent days from people who listened to the previous episode and I love having that. So it'd be fantastic if people can carry on reaching out, drop me a direct message or an email or lots of my details available on Instagram. And yeah, I'd love to hear from you and love your thoughts on the series. This has been Chris, I mean, Curtis Mansfield saying, stay unique, stay healthy, and as always, most importantly, stay safe.